Welcome to the Erectile Dysfunction Radio Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to educating and empowering men to address erectile dysfunction, improve confidence, and enhance the satisfaction in their relationships. This podcast is brought to you by ErectionIQ.com. Learn more at ErectionIQ.com. Welcome to the Erectile Dysfunction Radio Podcast. I am Mark Goldberg, Certified Sex Therapist. I am deeply passionate about working with men like you to help resolve their ED. Welcome back to another episode of the Erectile Dysfunction Radio Podcast. Today we are joined by Brooke Braylove. Brooke is a certified sex therapist and a certified Daring Way facilitator. She maintains a private practice in Montgomery County, Maryland, and works with clients from Maryland, the District of Columbia, and Virginia. She has over 20 years experience in the field of mental health and sex therapy, and I'm excited to have her on for today's episode. Brooke, thank you very much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Mark. Okay, so today what we want to talk about is this concept of vulnerability, how it impacts human sexuality, and uh, how it impacts sexual function and sexual dysfunction. So to get us started here in this episode, can you share with us with what this word vulnerability means? Well, as you mentioned, I'm trained in Brene Brown's uh, shame resilience curriculum, which is called uh, Daring Greatly. And vulnerability is really about opening your heart and it's about taking risk of emotional exposure with no guarantees that it's gonna go well and no guarantees that you're gonna get something in return. So I often just like to really think about vulnerability as almost like stepping forward with an open heart. That's what it feels like to me, which feels good. For a lot of people, they hear vulnerability and they hear weakness, no way, not signing up, not on your life. And that's where we get into a lot of problems in relationships because vulnerability is actually the most important thing to form connection. And it's something we look for in other people and it's the last thing we wanna show in ourselves. And so it can be really challenging to negotiate the idea of vulnerability and you know who's going first with their vulnerability. Uh, I always say somebody has to lead here um, when I'm doing couples work or when I'm doing group work and it requires a lot of courage. There is no doubt it does. So to get this a little bit more concrete, Creek, could you give us an example of uh, somebody maybe in a, in a relationship context doing something or saying something that is vulnerable? Well, it can be as simple as would you like to go to the movies later? That is vulnerable if you're afraid that, you know, the person may or may not want to go, right? That's putting yourself out there into the space, like into the relational space. And that's, you know, asking someone, do you want to spend time with me? I'm sure most of us can relate to what people think of as the most vulnerable words in a relationship, which is saying, I love you for the first time. That is really terrifying for a lot of people. And again, you often hear in couples who said it first, right? And somehow that's indicative of something. And you ask a couple and they'll they'll actually usually light up when you're working with them because there's usually a, a, a cute story behind it. But somebody has to lead and that person is leading with their total vulnerability. No guarantees the other person says it back. No guarantees they say anything. And so it can be as small as a bid for connection 
want to hang out later, something like that, or as big as I love you. It sounds like there is a risk reward element to this. The risk, it sounds like that I am going to make a reach for you or put myself out there in a way that you may not respond to me. You may not be on the same page as me. You may not share the same feelings that I share. The reward being yes, connection. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I have a memory uh, myself of a, a bid for connection with someone I was dating at the time. And it fell, I fell flat on my face with it. It was not reciprocated. Very clearly not. And I remember I was at lunch and I felt the sting. And I, a few minutes later, got up, went to the restroom and I looked myself in the mirror and I said, that sucked, but you were so brave for doing that. And that's what I left with. And I really encourage people to focus on what it means to them to be vulnerable rather than how is this going to be received? Because I was damn proud of myself, even though I fell flat on my face and it hurt. There's no way you get out of these things with, you know, no dirt on your face or your body. You, we fail, we, we get rejected. That is part part of life. But I felt really proud of myself that I had um, stayed within my own integrity and done something I wanted to do. And I, I appreciate that that anecdote so much, because if there was no possibility of something like that happening, it would not be exactly. vulnerable. As if we had a guarantee, then right, that doesn't, there's no vulnerability. You know, unfortunately, there is a downside. But when you are like, which sounds like work, you assume mm -hmm. that risk. In other words, you know, mm -hmm. I need to be vulnerable in this state. Yeah. You were proud of yourself. It, mm -hmm. it stung because that's what happens when you reach and there isn't that response on the other end. But like that just bid for connection and taking that risk was something that you walked away. Yeah. And that's how I want to be in the world. I want to be vulnerable, even when it's hard and scary. Now, the other piece around vulnerability that's extremely important, though, is to be vulnerable with the people who've earned the right to hear your story and to be vulnerable with. And of course, that's not always clear, right? I shared this story with, you know, my friend and she blabbed it to everyone at school. Well, that you shared something vulnerable and it didn't go well because that person was not very trustworthy with that vulnerability. And that would be certainly a learning experience and tell you something about that friendship. But again, no guarantees. So Brooke, how does vulnerability connect to human sexuality and sexual function? It's one of these crazy things that, again, without it, you usually don't have very good sexual connection or emotional, you know, connection. And it's terrifying to put yourself out there. I mean, when we think about, you know, one of the things we do in my Daring Greatly weekend groups is I ask people to give, you know, examples or say what vulnerability feels like to them. And many times someone has said, it feels like I'm standing there naked. Well, that's what vulnerability feels like. And then with sex, you're often doing that at the same time. So you're putting literally the most vulnerable thing out there, which is literally your own body, your Self, your soul, you know, and it requires vulnerability. I don't know anyone who's ever had an orgasm and not felt vulnerable, for instance. Um, it, it's required. It really is that that tuning into oneself, that letting go. And that's often what vulnerability does feel like, which is very terrifying, but also 
very freeing and there's a lot of pleasure there too. So would you say that emotional vulnerability in a relationship is something that would lead to a more enhanced or a deeper sexual connection? I know I'm asking a very broad general question, uh, but on general terms, is that how you would view it? Yes, but I think it goes both ways. So I think emotional vulnerability can lead to more, you know, sort of better, maybe loving sex or more connected sex. But I also think that more connected sex can also lead to more emotional vulnerability, right? You know, the whole idea in in Hollywood when they, you know, Mm -hmm. smoke a cigarette after they've had sex, they're usually chatting and and talking about something very real. That's because that release, that vulnerability perpetuated more intimacy. So I do think it goes both ways. And I think it's a little naive to say it only goes that one way. But certainly, the more connected you feel to someone emotionally, the more willing you are to kind of surrender to yourself and to the other person, which I think is an important part of of a healthy sexual relationship. And you're saying that surrendering like requires vulnerability. Yeah, again, I mean, you know, I really like to think about, you know, what dogs do. I have a puppy I, you know, I bring to work every day and I I say he just shows vulnerability cuz he's just on his back like this, like spread eagle, right? So he knows. He's like you can have access to this whole body. I trust you. And so he is surrendering and he teaches me something and I I usually say to my patients, "Look at him. He's showing you how to be vulnerable." Obviously, maybe not spread eagle, but you know the 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 gist of what I'm saying, which is, yes, it's a requirement. And even though we intellectually know it's a requirement for all connection of any, you know, family, romantic, with your children, we fight it and fight it and fight it. I am always amazed that couples who've been married for 20, 30 years come into my office and very early on, I'll, you know, ask them, so, you know, tell me what your communication is around your sexual relationship. And their answer is a big fat none, zero, meaning literally they have never talked about what they like and what they don't like. And that's usually what I just start with, which is just a simple like yes or no checklist kind of thing, even seeing if they've done that. And many couples have yeah, it. It takes a lot of vulnerability though to share those things. I mean, I mean, when you're in a long-term relationship, it, it seems kind of silly. How could it be that we went 20, 30 years not talking about our sex life or our preferences? But at the same time, it's really vulnerable because our lives are interdependent. And if I share this with you and you think I'm off or I'm strange, or I'm weird, that's going to start putting like our whole relationship at risk. So I think, you know, many people because of that risk reward, like in that vulnerable reach, like oftentimes just kind of steer away from it. They got a fear of judgment. Yeah, I just wrote that down, that incredible fear of judgment. If I share this desire, this wish, this fantasy, this ask, what, how is that going to change how you see me? And we really do sit with our desires often quite silently because we're so worried that the person will, what I always say is yuck, you know, yuck their yum. You know, if I share something that I think is going to be yummy and you yuck it and say, that's disgusting. What's wrong with you? How could you ever want to do that? I mean, talk about a shock 
shutdown that's going to happen, a shutdown and a complete pulling away. I mean, that person who offered that, you know, desire probably would not be able to be close again for quite a while because it's no longer safe. And you think I'm strange and, you know, weird for, for having a thought in my mind or an idea. And I, I you know, I, I know this has come up in my office. I don't know if you've encountered something like this where a person will know what their preferences are, but are petrified about bringing it to their partner. So they will find a, let's say a film that displays that without saying anything, and they'll just put it on. And then they'll kind of wait for their partner's reaction. And, you know, sometimes the partner doesn't react with like, right. fireworks, and really excited about it. They're just afraid to bring it up. It's just, they're just assuming that if their partner knew that they were interested in something like this, this is how they would respond. Um, I think all that kind of goes back to is that fear of rejection and so much yeah. of that testing, because that vulnerability is really tough, even in a long-term relationship. And in fact, I think it's harder in a long-term relationship. And I think it gets harder and ha harder the more years you go without that type of uh, vulnerable communication around sex or around anything, because the idea idea just becomes, but we've never done that. And we've had all these kids and, you know, that's not how we do things. Right. Mm -hmm. And so creating change in a 30 year marriage is much more difficult than telling a young couple who's in front of me, who's getting married, Hey, let's get this out. What do you like? What do you don't like? You know, what's working, what's not working. Um, and I do want to say that that idea of that displacement, right? So that person was, you know, saying like, well, if it's displaced over there in that movie, you know, let me see how you respond. I actually encourage couples to do any version of communication. So one of my favorite things is I give couples, you know, a sort of sexual activities list that you know, basically suggest some sort of sexual activity. And then you, you know, rank it one to five, five is absolutely, let's do it yesterday. One is over my dead body, would I do that and anything in between. And I say, you know, I can talk freely on here, you know, if someone's reading something, you know, about anal, like, if they don't want to say, hey, I'd like to try anal sex, it feels totally different when they're both looking at a piece of paper, and they're going down, you know, kissing, mm -hmm. fondling, anal sex. So it actually takes away a lot of the vulnerability because then it's just shared between them. So I always encourage patients to do whatever they can. Anything is progress. I also encourage texting around things you have fantasies about. Mm -hmm. A lot of people, when they're afraid, they cannot imagine saying the words anal sex, but they can type it pretty easily. I think the key difference um, I think that you're, that you're describing, I think this, this really comes back to like a vulnerable reach versus temperature taking, which is when like some of these people that I'm describing, their partner doesn't know that they're being introduced to a want. They're really just being assessed and there is none of that communication. And I think that's a big difference maker between yeah. it's hard to talk about this. So we may use an app, we may use cards, right. we may use the list, but we know that we are trying to inch toward sharing a little bit more with each other. We're trying to just talk about like interests, preferences, what I consider it, as opposed to, oh, I overheard my partner saying to you know a friend of hers that's crazy nobody should ever do something like that and that's it i shut it down i never thought about communicating about this yeah All right. i i i kind of describe that difference between like temperature taking and risk taking totally um if that distinction makes sense it does 
Okay. So, Brooke, you mentioned before, and this is very common, that people conflate the word vulnerability with weakness. Like they see that that emotional sharing or that emotional expression around wants, desires, fears, concerns as a weakness. And in particular, I see this a lot more with the male population that I work with. I think it's it's uh, an outsized or out you know numbered percentage of men who have this type of experience. Now, if a man were to say, I feel weak with this vulnerability and I cannot come to my partner afterwards and try to engage them in sexual activity because I feel tiny, I feel small, I feel like I just put all my weaknesses on the table. How would you respond to a patient or a client that said something like that? Well, I do a lot of sort of mindfulness, body-based practice, so I would certainly want to know where he feels that in his body, where that weakness lies in his body, just to get him more in touch with it. And, you know, I'm a psychodynamic psychotherapist, therapist. So of course, I'm going to say, who taught you that? Who taught you that that means being weak? And, you know, we usually don't have to go too far. We just pretty much go to our parents or grandparents or teachers or movies or you name it. It's in the water, uh, especially for boys, right? I mean, how many times do we tell boys not to cry? Uh, We tell that to girls too, but certainly more with little boys. And so I want to know where that came from, first of all. And then I want to know what his value is about closeness. Like, what does he value in a relationship? Closeness, intimacy, and what has he noticed that brings him closer to his partner or further away from his partner? And usually I will be able to help, you know, the man see that he looks for vulnerability in his, you know, partner. So why would his partner not want that, want to see that in him? And it can be, you know, really hard. And again, I'm certainly not suggesting necessarily that, you know, we, that you would be incredibly vulnerable about something and, you know, maybe you cry for the first time or something like that. And then that immediately goes into sex. I don't actually think those are in the same part of our brain. I don't know enough about the brain to, you know, specifically, but I don't think those things are right next to each other necessarily. It might be for some people. So I think that there is a time and a place for that kind of emotional vulnerability, but it's about feeling safe. So men equal to women want to be connected. I think they go about it differently. And I think their messaging is so much stronger about how to do that. But it's, you know, we are on this earth to be connected. That is how we are hardwired. And so we, we sort of say, oh, guys don't need as much and silly things like that. And it's not true. So I really want to look at what's the cost of not being vulnerable. How does your partner react when you aren't vulnerable, when you aren't empathic, when you don't meet them? Because they want closeness too. And those are old, old messages around vulnerability being weak. And then specifically, if I were doing couples, 
versus individual, I would say to the man's partner, tell me what it's like for you when he's vulnerable. And that usually just ends up being a beautiful moment, right? It's very mm -hmm. rare that that person's going to say, you know, uh, I'm totally unattracted to him and, uh, you know, I turn away. It's usually that's when I feel closest. That's when I feel love. That's when I feel generous. That's when I feel, you know, that I can be a good partner, all of those things. So, I mean, it sounds like the approach is that the vulnerability does lead to the connection that, you know, people, men, women, and every, everybody are wired for and are wanting to get toward. There is messaging that oftentimes inculcated at a very young age that really needs to be challenged around like vulnerability being weakness and helping people to see that it's vulnerability that you really are after or the connection that comes from that vulnerability. Yeah. And I just say, you know, discomfort does not mean bad. So if you're vulnerable and you feel uncomfortable, that's not necessarily bad. It's like you just exercised a new muscle. And so it's a bit sore and goes, oh, I didn't even know I had that muscle. It takes time. And, you know, again, since since there are no guarantees, it's not always going to go well. It's not always going to go well, right? I mean, the most vulnerable thing that couples tell me about is initiating sex, simply putting it out there. Would you like to, or I mean, even nonverbal, just the, you know, putting your arm around someone. And if your partner goes like this, you know, people, if, and that happens over and over again for 20 years, there is no doubt that person is not going to make themselves vulnerable because asking to engage sexually with your partner is extremely vulnerable. And sometimes mm -hmm. it's easier with someone you don't even know that well necessarily because there's not as much to lose. Right. And as you said, when you've built a life around someone, it, it is mm -hmm. terrifying um, and, and rejection hurts and the rejection and these sort of patterns we set up in couples, that same dance, I always say the person who's, you know, like there's always, there's usually someone who initiates a lot and someone who doesn't, not necessarily, but often the people who I end up seeing. And I will basically say, we have to change this dynamic immediately. And so, you know, I encourage the other person to actively try to initiate and it changes the whole thing because they get to own it for themselves rather than this kind of waiting around, you know, is she going to ask? Is he going to ask? Oh, is it tonight? What, you know? And again, I just think we need to be so much more upfront about all of this. Why are we waiting and hoping that, you know, he doesn't snuggle up in bed? Why don't I just say, hey, I have a stomach ache. Just wanted to let you know, not, not there tonight. But we wait and we are anxious and we close off and we do all these contortions. And he's saying, what are her cues? I can't tell. Is she interested? Is she not interested? Whereas if she had just said it after dinner, when she realized her stomach hurt, they could have had a really nice evening, maybe of touch and closeness, but knowing that it wasn't going to be sexual. Women want to be touched, but they don't always want it to lead to intercourse. And so what they do is they literally recoil from any kind of sensual romantic touch because in their mind that immediately means sex and I need to shut it down. And there's no reason for that. Be clear, I'd love to cuddle tonight or maybe we could make out, but I have to say I'm not feeling, you know, intercourse or, you know, 
communicate ahead of time. And then both the partner's anxiety goes way down and then they can watch a show and have a good night instead of, should I watch a 30 minute show because she won't be tired or he usually starts snoring at this time. So why are we, why are we guessing? Yeah, too much of an unspoken like dance that goes on in people's relationships and that vulnerability of just being forward and upfront uh, really can service people a whole lot better. But let's, let's kind of throw a different scenario out. One where we'd be curious about whether vulnerability could be a detractor from like the sexual experience. And I'll bring an example where I get curious about a, it's, we're talking about female sexual response here for a moment. So a female partner, uh, you're working with a heterosexual couple, the female partner says, and what what turns me on is my paradigm of what I consider to be a man, right? Which is no vulnerability. Like that really kind of turns me off. I I really need him to show up and just you know just be in control. I don't want to hear anything about emotion. I just want to have sex. So I also hear that all the time. Where's my alpha man? And again, that's where I get back to that idea that I don't necessarily think sex and vulnerability are are in the exact same spot next to each other. I think they're a little bit distant. So mm -hmm. if you ask that woman, for instance, if you say to her, okay, are you talking about all the time of your relationship? You want that man all the time with no vulnerability, no feelings. And usually she'll say, well, not all the time, of course not, but in the bedroom. And I say, yes, I'm not asking for the little boy to show up in the bedroom. That's not going to turn somebody on. But if he is vulnerable at other times, that promotes the closeness. And then, yes, you do want to bring, if your partner wants that, that male, you know, strong energy, which a lot of women want in the bedroom. They're not necessarily saying they want it all the time. And that is a huge, important distinction. And I also want to note that with so many women who are so successful, big careers, kids, you know, killing it in the world. Those are the women who specifically really, really crave sort of an alpha man in the bed because they are tired of being in charge. They are tired of making, you know, all the decisions for the home and things like that. And so I do see that. And again, a little encouragement, you know, you don't have to say, you know, I, I really don't like your how you know weak you are in the bedroom but what you can say is hey when you kind of grabbed my hair the other night that was kind of hot you don't have to you know lay it all out necessarily you could but you give encouragement it's a vulnerable conversation about not wanting the vulnerability in the bedroom right <laughs> in other words it's exactly. coming forward and saying i like when we can be in that other place. Right? And that's yeah. where I think they, there, there probably is that like you know, paradoxical element that to be able to get to those kind of experiences, you've got to be able to share it with your partner to say, let's not bring that piece into the bedroom. <laughs> right. Right? I don't want to show up there with like the way I'm showing up in the rest of the world. I want this to be different. That does require yeah. a lot of times that vulnerable conversation. Yeah, and I'm always amazed. I mean, you know, I see a lot of men who, again, also are, you know, CEOs and um, very much leaders. And guess what they want in the bedroom a lot of the time? They want to be submissive. I do think that sex can really provide a kind of 
balancing yin and yang to ourselves, which can be a really beautiful thing. I, I think sometimes we're looking to balance out our parts. And I think we can do that sometimes in the bedroom when maybe we don't have access to that elsewhere. So I love these parts, but I don't necessarily think, you know, they go one right after the other. I do think they need to be a little bit separated. Yeah. So in, in total agree with that. I think we, we, it, what's, what's very affirming for me in this conversation is that I think we see a lot of very similar patterns. And I do kind of see that you know, a lot of times people are looking in the sexual realm for things that don't necessarily fit with the rest of their lives or don't really fit their persona, but they want to be able to get that balance or get an experience that is very different than what they have the rest of the time. Of course, and this is where it gets so complex, is they've got to be able to share that. Yeah. Because a lot of times their partners are not going to just know that because yeah. that's not who you are the rest of the time. Yeah. So like, how am I supposed to know that? Or how am I supposed to guess? Right. And, and again, yes, you know, sounds and, you know, feedback during, you know, sex and, and, and that sort of thing can be really helpful. But I also think again, using that time right after sex, um, where there's usually, you know, maybe some cuddling to, to reflect on the experience a little bit. Hey, that one new thing you did, where'd you learn that? You know, or, um, you know, one thing I was, your, you know, my girlfriend told me about this amazing vibrator. I mean, that's again, so that there's the, the, it goes both ways. So the sex also creates um, the space for that vulnerable conversation. Okay. So kind of bringing this back to, you know, the, the general listening base for the podcast. So one of the, I think, contributing factors that we speak a lot about how erectile dysfunction is a multifactorial condition. But one of one of the, the factors I think is when people are aware of what works for them, but are oftentimes not sharing it. In your experience as a sex therapist and being you know very much in the vulnerability space, do you see that challenge that let's say a man may have with coming forward and sharing something that they know about themselves or something they know about their uh, sexual arousal patterns with a partner to the point that they are struggling to either gain or maintain an erection with a partner or struggling to really experience, let's say, an arousal pattern or desire because what works for them is just not, it seems like it's not a viable option in the bedroom with a partner. Yeah, I do think that men with ED can really struggle with how to communicate what works because sometimes what works doesn't actually directly involve the partner, right? So a lot of what works for, you know, men in erectile dysfunction is their own hand or their own toy or whatever, because, you know, there's that death grip that I like to, to talk about. And so I think they are really worried that they're going to be sh A, shamed for that, right? There's so much shame around masturbation, but also that their partner, let's say it's a female partner, is going to feel inadequate, not good enough, and that kind of thing. And then you put aging in there, and, you know, you've got two aging bodies. And so if you've got a man who's unable to maintain an erection, unless he's, you know, masturbating sort of quite a bit before and maybe in order to ejaculate, you're also going to have a woman who's probably dealing with her own feelings of 
her aging body and feel even more rejected. So I do think that it can be hard to share. I actually need you to, you know, help me in this one way. Now, the other piece I would say is that I would encourage men to share what works so that their partner can help them also think about other ways, right? Because we never want to, no, we never want, once you find out what works, sometimes you just go with that for 20 years, but mm -hmm. usually at some point that's not gonna work as well. And, you know, I always tell people, I mean, a vagina is not as strong as a man's, you know, death grip on his own penis. That's just a fact. That's nobody's fault. That's no, it's not that somebody's not good how, enough. How it works. It's just yeah. how it works. And so, but what are the workarounds? Maybe if you added, you know, a cock ring that might help, or maybe if you took breaks and masturbated a little bit in between, um, she might want to do that at the same time too. But yes, it's really hard. And the anxiety that it, the you know the relationship obviously between erectile dysfunction and anxiety is I, I just don't think you can talk about it enough literally I mean once it's in your head it's in your head but I also think that one's partner you know could help in let's you know let's focus on me for a little bit and so if you shared some of that anxiety or and and actually said like. I need to focus on you right now so I can get out of my own head. Let's focus on your pleasure. That's a good thing. And you're more likely to be a little bit more successful. To wrap up here, should being vulnerable get easy or easier with practice? I don't want to say over time, but as people like start to kind of exercise that muscle of sharing, uh, sharing their wants, their desires, their fears with a partner, is this something that should over time just become like a simple conversation or is it should be should it be expected that there's going to be that nervousness that angst about going ahead and putting something out there i absolutely love that question no one has ever asked me that question and i i think it's fabulous and oh my goodness i wish i i wish i really knew but here's the answer to that i think when you're in a zone of like i'm leading with my vulnerability and you're kind of on a roll like when you get in that headspace i think it can be get easier and easier and easier i still think there will be people in your life that it stays really hard with I do think once you start practicing it and getting some back, right? I, I I think it gets easier if you're if it's being reciprocated to some degree. I absolutely think it's practice. I do think it gets better, but I don't think that goes across the board. I think, you know, there may be a family member who you will always be anxious about being vulnerable, but that's usually learned and probably smart, but you want to practice, you know, with people like I always suggest people pick the safest person first. You want to practice vulnerability, go with someone. It's a sure bet. You've seen them be vulnerable. You don't doubt their love for you and practice mm -hmm. or start with your therapist. Well, there you go. That's definitely yes. it. Yeah. Let's yes, hope. But right? obviously, obviously, we're looking for uh, obviously applications outside of that where you have much more of a to a much more reciprocal type of relationship. But I do I do really appreciate that. It's a question that has kind of I guess kind of been on my mind as well. So I really, really appreciate that. Again, Brooke, once again, thanks again so much for joining us. This is a really, really important topic. I know it comes up so much in the work that we do working with people, but also in people's lives. I know that there's so many people sitting 
like on the fence about what to bring to a partner, how to bring bring it to a partner. Um, and they're weighing the pros and the cons. I really appreciate just how much of a push this is to encourage people that like taking those steps can be really impactful, really can change the direction of a relationship. So um, once again, anybody who's interested in working with Brooke, we're going to leave a link to her website um, in the description to this episode. You can reach out to her. I don't know if she has openings currently, but uh, hopefully she'll be able to uh, talk with you and meet with anybody who uh, would like to work with her. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Erectile Dysfunction Radio Podcast. For more information on today's topic and understanding how the mind impacts erectile dysfunction, please visit ErectionIQ.com. That's ErectionIQ.com.